Hello and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. My name is Daniel Vincent. i uh, here with my co-host Travis filling in for Sean today. Um, and we have a special guest with us today. We have Dr. James Dolezal, uh, Director and Professor of Theology at the Radius Theological Institute out in California and also um, still teaching at Karen University out in Pennsylvania. Dr. Dolezal, thanks for joining us today. Daniel, it's a pleasure to be back on with you and, and with Travis as well. Well, it's been a, there's been a lot of transition with you over the past year. You've gone out to California, kind of fit into a new position. Can you speak a little bit more to that uh, and what brought you out to California? Sure, glad to. Um, I'm currently uh, in Bakersfield uh, as director and professor of theology at Radius Theological Institute. Uh, we're not a degree-granting institution, but we do a 12-week intensive uh, theology training uh, for pastors who want to come back into school, but without, you know, papers and exams, uh, but just sort of good lectures and good reading. Um, and we also uh, have a number of students who are uh, aspiring missionaries who really want to kind of shore up their theological education, um, or maybe are preparing to do more formal theological education uh, before they go to the field. But we really are open to uh, pastors, uh, elders, laymen, aspiring missionaries, missionaries on furlough, those that want to kind of come back into the classroom and get some intense lecture time on theological topics. And we're really kind of central doctrines in our program. So Doctrine of God is kind of our big flagship course uh, that I teach. That's about a four-week, three-hour-a-day, so a 60-hour lecture course. Um, we also do a Doctrine of Christ course. It's about a 45-hour lecture course. And then we do a course on, on Doctrine of Man, Sin, and Salvation as well. And then beside myself, we have some visiting professors uh, who come in uh, to teach both uh, historical theology and biblical theology. So we have Jonathan Master uh, from Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, as well as Michael Morales uh, from the same seminary who teaches for us. Uh, and then we also have Lane Tipton, uh, previously from Westminster Seminary, uh, coming in and teaching biblical theology as well. So students take a, take a five-course, 12-week semester, um, very lecture and reading heavy. Um, so that's, that's it in a nutshell. Wow, sounds uh, sounds fun. It sounds very interesting. It, it's good to have, I think, some of those institutes that are focused on those doctrines. Those are much needed doctrines. I need to be brought back and discussed today. So that's that's really neat to hear that you guys are investing in that. Um, but moving on to our our topic for today, we're going to talk about divine providence. Um, this is a very controversial topic in the evangelical world, um, and is really a dividing line between. Uh, those who would be Calvinists and, and those who aren't, uh, the implications of providence and some of the things involved in that. Um, and this is really uh, a discussion that's flowing out of an, an article that Dr. Dolezal wrote called Agency, Concurrence, and Evil, A Study in Divine Providence. It was originally published in uh, the Institute for Foreign Baptist Studies Journal 2019, um, That is, and it's now publicly available at academia.com. You can search for it there. And we'll post the link in the description for the video. Um, but really talking about this this idea of providence and, and what this is today is really what our topic is going to be about. So, Dr. Dolzo, what was the inspiration to to really take a deep dive into this study of divine providence? I guess most broadly, it's just the perennial question that every Christian uh, must wrestle with, which is that God is all wise and all powerful and yet there is evil in the world. 
and I should add to that, um, omnibeneficent, uh, all good. Uh, and so if we serve an, an all wise, all good, all sovereign God, and yet there's evil in the world, then, you know, and the, and the question that sort of pops up in everyone's mind is, well, what gives or does something have to give? Um, how do I square uh, how do I square that um, sort of deep mystery? And it's it's not just theoretical. Um, we all live in this cursed world and we know evil both in our own hearts and we we do evil and we've had evil done to us. And then there are other evils that we sometimes call natural evils or natural disasters. We perceive the effects of the earth groaning under the curse. And so then there's the question, if God makes all things, sustains all things, is good, wise, sovereign, good, wise and sovereign, then why evil? So there, that's probably like in the background, if you haven't wrestled with that question, um, why not? Uh, you know, that I think most Christians do uh, in either in more or less explicit ways wrestle with that question. Uh, probably uh, from there, it came out of just questions raised in a Doctrine of God course that I taught uh, for many years to undergraduate students. And they would ask um, very hard and challenging questions about the God of classical theism, sort of the, if you want to say it, uh, the Augustinian, Thomistic, and broadly reformed, and even interestingly classical Arminian, if I can just make a distinction, um, positions. How do we square that kind of broad consensus on God's absolute primacy of being and his being goodness itself, the summum bonum, as Augustine would say, how do we square all of that with the reality of evil? And the, the students really asked a lot of very penetrating and sophisticated questions about that. So that was where I sort of started thinking about it. And then lastly, um, I was teaching in 2018 at the Southern California Reformed Baptist Pastors Conference on this topic from the Second London Confession. And that really gave me occasion to bear down and, and write up some things. So this article is really a distillation of pieces of four different lecture notes uh, from that conference. And what's interesting, um, it, you don't find, I think, a lot of uh, extensive discussions around providence. Um, and I think that that's where this article was very helpful for me because it introduced me to concepts that I hadn't really been introduced for before and better ways to explain, um, you know, talking about the authorship of evil as it relates to God. How do I reconcile that with the fact that God is sovereign and he decrees all things? So um, I think a, a discussion of that is very needed. That really is the sticking point, I think, with a lot of, of Calvinists and Arminians and those who would call themselves provisionists. Um, so I, I think it's very well, that, helpful that we have. Yeah, this that's a good point. And the thing is, there is a there's a bit of talk about you know that God is providential, and then usually the talk gets into something more like just a matter of scope. To what extent does His providence operate in a kind mm. of um, in a kind of um, unchangeable, unalterable way in the world? So we tend to talk about the um, efficacy and the scope about prov of providence, but we talk a little less about the manner of it. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, the, especially vis-a-vis -vis created agents. Um, and that's kind of what I'm trying to get into with this article. Hmm. So, Dr. Dozal, if you had to give an overview or a brief description of providence, how would you clarify that for those listening? Yeah, I mean, the word li literally uh, just means to... Um, 
to it, it just describes the initiative and seeing to a thing. In fact, you can even see in a little root in Providence, the little VID, you know, you watch a video. Um, it, it's that idea of seeing to a thing. But uh, the, the little pro on there is the idea of um, foreseeing or taking an initiative and seeing to a thing. Um, we, and we get our word provide from this. When I provide for something, uh, the language comes from I see to its provision. Um, and so if we can, if, if I wanted to be very basic, I would say, um, this is God's universal seeing two things, not not in the sense of ob observationally getting knowledge, but in the more initial, in the sense of taking the initiative to provide for, um, to see for the well-being of things. I would argue, I would offer though a little amplification of that uh, in the language of the Second London Confession. Uh, it says that God, the good Creator of all things, in His infinite power and wisdom does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence to the end for which they were created according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of his glory, the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. All right, that's a mouthful, but that's kind of, if I wanted to do my, the first thing I'd say, this is God's universal seeing to, and if I wanted to amplify it, I might go to the confession for that. But this is this is really God giving and sustaining and ordering the beings that are in the all beings in the universe, all created beings. Um, so that'd be kind of like my high altitude. Um, this is what providence is. But it does obviously raise the question uh, with well, we'll talk about this in a second. But with regard to like m what people call meticulous providence, you know, sort of how how deeply into the created order does this providing for or seeing to this directing and disposing and sustaining and all that how, how deeply does that penetrate uh and you can you can almost imagine does does god does god see to you know the life the breath and every flap of a wing in a mosquito in a backwater you know swamp somewhere um and and then people kind of that just almost seems um that must that almost seems um, overwhelming, perhaps. You know, the way a modern CEO directs a company is by, uh, in a certain sense, allocating responsibility to middle managers. And wouldn't it be more efficient, so to speak, if God, in a, in a certain sense, trained some managers? So to, let's just call those natural laws, if you will. Um, and then just let them kind of do the seeing too of the lower things. In other words, um, you don't want to spread yourself too thin. And so good management says, um, allocate responsibilities, don't bear it. The Christian doctrine of providence, though, says that God is himself personally and immediately seeing to all the details, you know, as the text of uh, Acts 17 says, life, breath, and all things, Acts 17, 25. Um, God is one who gives all of those things. And so there's a question of, I think that objection though, from meticulous providence sometimes is kind of the, sometimes is the concern of, well, wouldn't God sort of be getting in the way of other causes and not letting them really do their causal work? That's one concern. Um, the other concern is, wouldn't, wouldn't that in a certain sense deplete him? Um, but again, the, the, the historical answer is if God is on, if God is, I am not bounded by, I am not, if God is infinite boundless being, um, and is omnipotent, then no amount of meticulous providence in a certain sense will wear him down or, or deplete his stores of energy. Um, so that's kind of the, 
the, the scope question and the seeing to things question. Travis, to your point a little more deeply though, I think we should say that initially with regard to providence, God sees to that which is innermost in things, which is which is what everything else about a thing depends on, most particularly active existence, most particularly active existence, um, that he is the one who gives life, breath, and everything else in Acts 17, 28, and in him we live, move, and have our being. Um, there's nothing more deeply penetrating in you than your is, if I can put it like that. There's nothing you are that isn't, if I can, if I can put it like that. Um, and so that your, that your being, your active existence is that which is innermost in you. And it's that which God immediately causes in everything that has existence. In every creature that isn't identical with its existence, God, is, which is every creature, God is the immediate cause of existence, or the, the medievals would say essay, uh, the act of to be. Um, God is the immediate giver of that. Um, and that does that gets into some issues, Travis, with regard to, um, well, how meticulously is God involved in the world? He's as involved as the most as the innermost aspect of anything in the world, namely its active existence. Um, that has some implications um, because my active existence is, in a certain sense, a fundamental principle without which I wouldn't move or breathe or do or think or act as an agent. So like my acts of agency, you know, I have a, I have a pen in my hand. I can, I can lift this pen. Um, that's an act of agency. But if I don't exist, I don't lift pens. Do you get what I'm after? Like I can exist right. without lifting a pen, but I can't lift a pen without existing. My existing, my act of being is more interior and fundamental than the things I do in virtue of my existence. So really, really what we're getting after with this is, if that most fundamental thing about me, namely my is as opposed, you know, my existing as opposed to not, is immediately from God, then everything that depends upon my is inevitably also depends upon God. Does that make sense? So it's not like God makes me exist, but he doesn't have any causal role to play in my actions. My actions aren't if I am not, and therefore my actions depend no less upon God than my being depends upon God. So if, if that kind of that so that's a way of thinking about divine providence uh, in its kind of most um, penetrating dimension. What's interesting, um, you know, you, we talk about the differences about those who would hold to a reform view and what we would see as a biblical view of providence, and those who don't. It seems to go back to how do I understand who God is. If I don't understand who God is, it's going to have implications on things like this and how God works in the world. If I assume God is like me, then I'm going to run into these uh, roadblocks in terms of how I can reconcile an all-knowing, all-powerful God with evil in the world and those things that happen that may not comport to our liking. And we should, and I should just add on that. Um, you're right to say that's a reform view, but it was it, it was held long before the Protestant Reformation. In that respect, the, the reform tradition, I think, is just keeping faith with uh, millennia and a half of mm, a, a of a Christian teaching that was out there. And so, I, I would want to sort of throw into the mix sure. uh, sort of pre reformational types like Augustine of Hippo or Thomas Aquinas. Uh, or any number of Dominican friars that said the same thing, or, or Augustinians who said the same thing. So, but there's a certain sense. Part of the, I think, part of the, um, part of the wisdom of the Reformed tradition is holding on to those convictions and arguments insofar as they are biblically grounded um, and sound doctrine. 
Amen. Um, and so for any, I don't know, for any listeners or viewers that think that we're talking about something sectarian here, we're really talking about something that is very broadly Christian and attested mm. across various traditions. Um, Amen. Uh, but fair enough, if we're confessional and reformed, uh, and it's the particular Baptist podcast, we should say we also <laughs> <laughs> hold to that view. Reformed uh, identifying with broader Christianity. Yeah, that's that's Very that small C Catholicity yes, that is amen. actually part and parcel of being reformed. Um, yeah. Amen. But and, anyway, that, I didn't mean to you know correct you. Just no, to it's say, a good clarification. Uh, we should amen. situate ourselves into a bigger yep. tradition um, on this point anyway. Um, yep. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's good. All right. Travis. You want to get a little deep? You want to, want to push a little farther? Yes. Let's dive let's deeper into this. Yeah. So you talked, you know, about, again, yeah, the Ase, you know, or we're not independent. You talked about God being behind all things, you know, because he is the only one who is truly independent, the only unmoved mover, the only, you know, uncaused cause. We all have our ties back into him in every last thing. So therefore he is involved in every portion of it. Why would you say that that is a crucial piece to our understanding of providence? Because there's a lot of people that believe the word, but there's different definitions behind it. And again, that goes back to what Dan was saying, how our understanding of who God is. Travis, that's a good question, because in a certain sense, if we don't lay down some markers, so to speak, about the manner of God being God and therefore the manner of his operation, um, then it's going to be easy to imagine that he relates causally to other things the way we relate causally to other things, which is as uh, I'll get it. Well, maybe we should say this now as a kind of um, we are all we are all um, in incomplete finite causes that are real causes and yet we are not comprehensive causes we are not sufficient explanations comprehensively um even for the things we cause in particular to travis's point because we aren't sufficient explanations of our own being that is to say um if i said you know what's the reason god exists and the answer is god it is god's nature to be but it's not my nature to be my nature has existence god's nature is existence um i'm my, if I put it in, in biblical terms, my name is not I am. I am is a I am is a contracted description. I am human. I am sitting. I am a Christian. I am all of my little I ams are actually contracted and specified into a package that is me. God's I am is not a specified contracted package of is. If I can be a little bit abstractive in my language here. Um, God is unbounded being itself. God is the reason for God. And so you brought up aseity. Um, if you want to, Nick, ase means of himself or from himself, not in the sense of self-caused. Nothing can be the absolute cause of itself because causing is an operation that presupposes being. And as I like to say, if you aren't, you can't. Like, really, if you aren't, you can't. You don't do if there's no you there that is to do. Okay, so nothing can be the absolute first cause of itself. So when we say God is of himself or from himself, we don't mean in the sense of causa sui, first cause of himself. Uh, we mean that God is the reason for God. God is the is by which he is. God doesn't have an is. He is his is. Okay, so God's name is I am, properly speaking. Um, that actually, I mean, even before we talk about God's relation to the world as a cause or as a seer to a provider, um, even before that, we, you're right, Travis, we need to sort of lay down some firm convictions about the manner of his being, because the manner of his being is going to thoroughly inform our understanding of the manner of his providence. 
the how he is able to question is really rooted in the how he is question. Does that make does that make sense? The manner of his act operation providentially is going to be completely conditioned by what we say about the manner of his being. More, that he's self-sufficient. Moreover, if I can kind of flip it and come from the side of the world, um, also the manner of our being is going to, in a certain sense, condition the manner of our relation to his providence, which is to say, um, I'll just kind of get, let's just cut this right to the bone then. If the manner of my being is at any moment not self-sufficient, that is to say, I am not the reason I am, but I always have an is that isn't identical with me. My, it, my being is a principle that I possess that is, that is joined in a unity with my nature. Um, so that my nature has existence, my nature isn't existence itself. My nature is, a, is something really distinct from my existence that contracts my existence and derives its is from my active existence. And so there's a certain sense in which if at every moment I'm dependent for life, breath, and all things, and if in God I live, move, and have my being, that is to say, I'm not my being, I have being from him. If all of my being is always from him or from another, then there's a certain sense in which I will always require whatever agent, and in this case, we're talking about God who makes from whom are all things, Romans 11, 36, I will always require that cause of being to sustain me, to keep me in being. And so there's a, there's a real sense in which my non-oseity, if you want to, if you want to Latin for this, it's per aliud. I exist through or by another. God does not exist per aliud. He exists ose. He exists of himself. God is his own reason for being. I'm not my reason for being. I don't exist if God doesn't make me be. If everything I do depends fundamentally upon my existence, then everything I do ultimately depends upon God who makes me be. Or we kind of, so it really comes down to onto, the ontological or metaphysical condition, so to speak, of the cause and the cause. In this case, I'm a multi-parted, you know, existence plus essence plus accidents. I'm a multi-parted entity that is not the sufficient reason for himself. Um, I don't draw breath. I don't continue in existence apart from someone, not myself, making it so. That, that kind of creator-creature distinction and really characterizing the manner of being that is peculiar to God and the manner of being that is common to creatures, um, if we can kind of get that in place, then certain necessary features are going to follow in our description of divine providence. How God relates to the creature as universal provider um, is going to be conditioned by what we say about the manner of being. So there, so there we are. My non-oseity is, in a certain sense, the reason why um, I live, move, and have my being from him and receive from him life, breath, and all things. Um, all of my is and all of my operations that depend upon my is then ultimately depend on his provision. Maybe one, if I, I, I have the article in front of me, so I'm just going to try not to lose my place, but just give one um, brief comment. This is, um, this is from Thomas Aquinas. He says, a thing does not give being except insofar as it is an actual being. So like I could give, I could give the being of place to this pen. I could lift it up. I could put it on the shelf behind me. Um, I can give a state of being to it. Like the accident of place. He says, a thing does not give being except insofar as it is an actual being. In other words, if you aren't, you don't make things be. Okay. So that's, that's Aquinas's point. And then he says, but God preserves things in being by his providence. 
Therefore, it is as a result of divine power that a thing gives being. So the point is this, causes give being, okay? I don't give being unless I am. And since I'm not the sufficient reason for my being, I don't give being unless God makes me be. And so it's not just that I am that depends upon God's providence. It's also that and what I do that depends upon divine providence. So Aquinas says, hence, if this divine influence were to cease, every operation, he means of the creature, would cease. So if God took away my is, then all my doings would collapse immediately with it. And he says, therefore, every operation of a thing, he's talking about intellectual, rational, free creatures, and also things like laws of nature, if you want to say it like that. Every operation of a thing, he says, is traced back to him, that is to God, as its cause. Every, and that, that means every blink of my eyes, <laughs> um, every you know, every operation that I, every doing, every, and this is actually, what I like about this is, I think what uh, uh, Thomas is saying really syncs up nicely with the apostle, with what the apostle Paul is saying in Acts 17, 28, when he says, in him, we live, move, and have our being. It's not just that God gives us our initial act of existence and then says, now go and behave with that act of existence. Um, of course, he tells us to behave. He gives us our act of existence, but then he also, he also gives us all of the motions or operations that we undertake independence on our active existence. Um, and so when Paul says in him, we, he says, he doesn't just say in him, we exist. He says in him, we live, move and are, or have our being. Um, again, it's not just my is, it's also my doings in virtue of my is that depends upon God. And, th and he's saying, this isn't just true of Christians. And it's not just true, true of me when I do righteous things. You know, when I do something righteous, I can say, you know, but for the grace of God and the spirit of God within me, but it's actually everything. This is that comprehensiveness. It's, it's actually everything. It's the words I'm speaking now. It's the blinking of my, it's the blinking of my eyes. It's the buttoning of my shirt. Um, it's the drawing of my breath. All of my doings are from him, my movements. Where this gets challenging with regard, well, I know you guys are going to kind of want to push to the question of evil in a second. I'll, I'll anticipate you, but not try to get too far ahead of you. But this, this raises serious questions. If some of the things I do are bad and all of my doings are from God and God is the, you know, as Thomas says, all every operation, by the way, are all of my operations morally good? No. And so if all of my operations can be traced back to God as the cause, then am I not off the hook, so to speak, morally, to just that extent? I mean, that's the, that is kind of where the description of providence that I'm proposing here really meets some very hard questions. Um, and I, I, don't, I don't think it would be fair of us to just simply swap those questions away as if they were unserious. I think they're deeply serious um, and they're and they're biblically motivated. Is that, does that make sense? And I think our tradition, actually, when I say our tradition, I'm kind of going for like the broadly Augustinian one here, which means um, all the reformed and all of your favorite Dominican friars. I kind of mean like the whole, I mean like that, that we've, we've wrestled with this question. We've wrestled, in other words, we haven't treated this as unserious or as, oh yeah, that's, that's easy to answer. Um, there are good answers, um, but they're hard because the question is a challenging one. But you got before we talk about evil, maybe you guys wanted to talk about because I we want to talk about a little bit about agency, like what about creaturely causes? So I'll, uh, I'll so let you 
probe that. Yeah, I'd actually like to, you know, bring up a point or a memory rather. It's when I was young and not so studied and thought I knew everything still. I remember having a discussion with somebody on the topic of how God can be in control of all things or over all things and they know all things yet not be, I guess, the, considered the author of evil. And, and I, like many people, tried to explain it away. Like, oh, well, God created something. Like the point you just brought up, God didn't just make this, just be good, you know, go do good things. You know, I used to explain it away. Well, God created everything and he knows all things, but then he left it up for variables. And, you know, and if a building goes up, now it blocks the wind and the wind changes. But God knew it would happen, but that wasn't part of his it, it was horrible looking back on it. It's embarrassing that I would have such a view, but it is an easy way to try to get God off the hook that um, it doesn't have anything to do with the Bible. But it, I, I found I'm not alone, though, in that kind of a shallow view of who God is and how he is involved in his creation. So the temptation, Travis, that you're describing is a common one, and it can run in a couple of different directions. Um you can, if God makes all things and sustains all things, and if all things live, move, and have their being from him, and yet then it would seem that some of those things um, are evil, then you can do one of two things. You can, in a certain sense, um, deny the reality of evil and just say that it's kind of your, well, it only feels bad to you, but there is no real evil in the world. There's just, you know, kind of that almost like a stoic kind of hard-bitten cynical approach. You can do one of two things with that. And I, broadly, there are kind of two bad responses to that challenge. And it's a serious challenge. Well, the one is a kind of pantheistic explanation where you actually deny that there are created causes. In other words, there really is nothing but divine agency. There is no created agency. Um, and there really is, in a certain sense, there's no creature does good or evil because no creature as a creature does anything. In pantheism, everything is just a spark in the divine life as it develops itself in identity with the world. Um, and so in a certain sense, pantheism just kind of swallows up the whole question of evil into God developing himself. And the idea that God is good, but creatures aren't, but there, there isn't really creatures that aren't God. Do you get what I'm after in, in terms of pantheism? Um, God is God is ontologically, metaphysically identical with all things. And so there isn't really like an absolute creator creature distinction uh, in pantheism. So you can kind of get rid of, you can get rid of evil by getting rid of the evil doers. That is to say, deny angelic or human moral agency swallow it all, dissolve that distinction all up into God developing himself. And then evil is just kind of a, um, kind of a mistaken conventional way of identifying what seems to you like an unpleasant moment in this God self-development process. Okay. Most people are like, I'm not tempted by that. I think we're, well, some people are, I mean, you've got like Baruch Spinoza and that, that's a very serious tradition in, in Western intellectual history, but probably the more probably the the more appealing bad answer is to, in a certain sense, not deny creaturely agency, that creatures actually do things for which they bear responsibility, but in a certain sense to kind of step God out of the causal explanatory picture so as to kind of leave free play and space out there for those creatures to kind of wreck themselves, if you will, uh, you know, or get, you know, God give you enough rope to hang yourself. What are you going to do with the rope kind of thing? Um, and what you actually do is you sort of 
you help, you know, theodicy is sort of the justification of God. You justify God by kind of slow walking him out of the causal picture. Do, do you get what I'm after? This is, this is like what you get in, in something like deism. So in deism, God gives the world an initial shove into existence. You know, he gives it its first heave out there. And then, you know, you, I could be a little facetious and say, you know, goes fishing or does whatever, just says, hey, I'll, I'll check up on you from time to time. And if things get really haywire, I might stick my finger in there and, and you know, do a miracle or something. But for the most part, um, I'm just going to kind of, I'm going to give the laws of motion. I'm going to let them kind of self-sustain and perpetuate themselves. Um, and I'm going to give the process of generation and inertia and all these other things that keep things going. I'm just going to build them into the nature of things, which he does, by the way. But then I will take my leave, causally speaking, of it. In other words, my causing will stop after I shove it out there. And so if you do anything as an agent, then God isn't making you, in that case, God isn't making you move. He just got you going. But at this point, you're kind of on your own. Um, now, deism is a kind of extreme you know, God taking his lead, you know, his immediate causality, taking leave of the world. But we can do this in like more incremental ways, kind of like a kind of like a, a, a super soft core deism where God doesn't really ever like really pull back from the world for any great period of time. But he kind of just he kind of just causally steps out or steps aside here and there in little causal events so as not to get morally entangled in the bad doing. Do you know what I'm after? So it's not like a complete hardcore deism, see you later, check up on you in a couple hundred years type of removal, but it's still a walking God's causality back from his own creature. So as to, to your point, Travis, you know, get him off the hook when said creature, you know, does badly. Um, and those kind of two approach, the, the problem with those two approaches is really this. They both, they, they both turn on, a, an identical, I think, mistake, which is that God and the creature could not be both causally active in the same event without giving way to each other. So there's this, there's a kind of either or, um, you know, notion of operation. Um, to the extent God causes a thing, the creature doesn't. To the extent the creature causes a thing, God is not causally, you know, God is not causally involved in that moment. Um, and so there is a kind of what's happening in both deism and pantheism is they conceive of multiple agents as necessarily competitive. Do you get what I'm after? So the way the way pantheism gets rid of it is it just gets rid of one of the competitors. <laughs> it takes out creaturely agency and there aren't really any kind of creatures who are causes that aren't just sparks in the life of God. OK, Um Deism and all of its varieties, whether it's that softcore deism where God just kind of once in a while steps aside from his causal operation or that hardcore deism where he really just takes his leave altogether. Because um, you know what I'm talking about. Like people will say, well, he lets me decide here and there, but they but they aren't going to go hardcore and say, but he's not sustaining, you know, the laws of nature and, and gravity and the motion of the heavens. And, you know, in other words, they don't want to push him out altogether. They just want to push him out of events in which moral culpability might be a factor. You know what I mean? The, de the decision, the free choices of humans and angels. Those are the events where God kind of removes his causal operation just at that point. Um, the problem with that though, is it turns on the same assumption. God and the creature could not both be causal agents 
at the same time with regard to the same caused event. Okay. And you might, and so I'll give you an illustration of this with regard to um, like a, like two causes. We can almost think of two causes, um, you know, Thomas Aquinas, not accepting, but just gives the illustration of two men lifting a boat. And we might think that, you know, Travis lifts the front end and Daniel lifts the back end. And you might, you might split that, that operation of boat lifting 50, 50, or, you know, or Travis might pick up 60 and Daniel's going to pick up 40, but to just the extent that Daniel is the cause of that boats being lifted, Travis isn't. And inversely to just the extent that Travis is the cause. And so is, you know, uh, you, uh, uh, Daniel isn't. And so what you actually are doing is you are, you're concurring, but you're concurring as coordinate causes, which is to say, you do your part, the other cause does his part, producing the same outcome. And so people people are okay with that. You know what I'm after? God God pitches in his bit, I pitch in my bit. Collectively, we get jobs done. Um, but what's but that again? That turns on the deist and pantheist notion of agency, which is um, if this agent's operating to just that extent, this other agent can't be operating in the same causal event. Do you know what I'm after? Or put a little differently, the competitive notion is if I'm if I'm causing, then you have to step aside or I cause partially and you cause partially and we'll do something bigger than either of us could do on our own, like lift a boat or something like that. Um, but again, I think that that kind of either or cosmology where you can't actually have God at work in your work. Do you get what I'm after? Um, you can't have God making you move and you be the agent of your own motion. Like that's that that kind of either or thing. God's got to move out of the way to just the extent. That view actually thinks of God. I'll just kind of get right to it. That thinks of God as a finite cause among causes. God is, does that make sense? Like what I'm after there? Like, mm-hmm. so, yeah. So God, yeah. yeah. So God is kind of, share, I'll, I'll put it like this. God is sharing causal explanatory space, so to speak, with the creature. Uh, does, does that make sense? And so Four he's not causing the causality of the creature. He's negotiating a relationship to an autonomous primacy that belongs to the creature. Um, you see, and, that, and, and if that's how it is, if God relates to me the way other causes relate to me in creation, whether natural or volitional causes then in a certain sense, every time I do something bad, I've already got the mechanism for explaining why God's not on the hook for it because that was the part I did, not God. Do you get what I'm after? But if, I, but if we go back to what we were describing a few minutes ago with regard, but, the, but there is no me doing unless there's God immediately making me be and move, then, then God isn't so sort of neatly cut out of the picture when it comes to like, say, acts of my will. Do you get what I'm after? Like, and so the explanation, the the way of getting God off the hook is to kind of, is to kind of slow walk him step at a time out of the causal explanatory picture. And what that does though, is that renders God a cause among causes. The problem with this for the Christian is that that that's going to result in either um, you can go, you can go the pantheistic direction, or you can go to some variety of deism, but every variety of deism, depending on how, you know, softcore or hardcore you are about it, is more or less a cosmic dualism. That is to say, it is a cosmology that set, that has multiple primary causes. 
There is no, there are, there are multiple primary irreducible, at least operations, operations, multiple ones that cannot be traced back to a single first cause. And as soon as you have a plurality of first causes, you're into something like a kind of pagan cosmology. Do you get what I'm after? Where God has to negotiate. This is how the gods of the nations relate to things. They are mm -hmm. super causes, but they're not boundless, infinite causes. They are causes among causes. And they can, they can meet their limit in other gods or demons or in shrewd humans uh, that can sort of outwit them or overcome them, you know, uh, in some kind of, you know, conniving. Uh, and that's how the gods of the nations are. The gods of the nations share causal explanatory space with other gods and humans and natural laws. Do, 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 do you get what I'm after? And if you're going to try to shoehorn God into a causal explanatory picture like that, then God will not be the absolute first cause for the world. He'll just be an amazing cause, perhaps, among causes. Um, and I do think, and, and if you think of God's causality as... Um, competitive with creaturely causality. I've met Calvinists that do this, by the way. I don't know if you have either, but they almost, they almost treat God's causality as if it has to overwhelm and destroy yours. So like when God sovereignly saves you and his will is irresistible, what's he doing? He's in a certain sense, just steamrolling your will, yeah. you know? And I, I definitely have heard that kind of excellent, like, First of all, that's not just so for your we're clear for our listeners, like that's not a classical Calvinist uh, position, even mm -hmm. if it is one that is frequently invoked by modern Calvinists, <laughs> because they're using this kind of um, competitive cosmology model. And so if I'm going to if, if I'm going to will, then God has to make me will compulsively. Do you get what I'm after? And then like and then then you'll have Calvinists that are out there saying, well, I don't believe in free will, you know, and then you go to the then you go to our confessions and we all turn to like chapter nine and we're like, oh, free will. And the first thing it does is all these reform confessions affirm free will. And, you know, and if you have a competitive causality, causality model for God and the creature, then you don't have room for that chapter in your theology. And I've, I've met many, a um, you know, what they call the cage stage Calvinists. I've met many of those that are happy to just absolutely throw creaturely causality by, by the way in order to, quote unquote, make room for sovereignty. But the thing about sovereignty is sovereign, you don't need to make room for sovereignty because sovereignty isn't a finite cause among co causes that's competing with other causes for causal explanatory space. What we should say is that he's the cause of causes. I think you guys brought this up in an email you sent to me um, about primary and secondary causes, that he's the cause of causes. So like if we can kind of go back to this, um, let's just say... Um, Let's just say that it's a boat you can lift. And, and I say, Daniel and God lift this boat. You know, let's just say it's like a little kayak or something. Um, then what I could say, though, there is that they are that that's what we call in theology concurrence. Right. Like, Daniel, if you're lifting a boat, like when you lift a boat, Daniel, do you think you're actually doing something causal? Yes. Yeah. And you're right. You're not wrong about that. Yeah. Um, you are. <laughs> but is your doing something causal? Um to the extent you are the cause, is every other cause excluded? Um, to that extent, I mean. And the answer is, if you're talking about finite natural causes, yes. Now, it may be you, it, obviously, you may coordinate with other causes. Like, let's just say that, um, let's just say that it's like, the, 
like gravitational pull in a certain sense um, does its work in a co- in a in a cause. Um, and I do my part to the extent it causes, I don't to the extent I cause it does it. but together we produce an outcome. Um, is that how God, re- so is God involved causally in your lifting of a boat, Daniel? Yeah, you'd have to be if, if I exist. Yes. And that's the thing, but when this, this comes to the mode question, but where is he causally involved in your operation, in your causing? It is not, and this this I'm taking this language though it's very Thomistic. I'm taking it from a New England Congregationalist, John Norton, in his book uh, *The Orthodox Evangelist*. Um, John Norton says that in that act of concurrence, where there's actually a um, there is a cooperation. In fact, I know some 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 Calvinists get weirded out by this language, but we really shouldn't be. There is a cooperation literally a co a cooperation of God and Daniel in the event of Daniel lifting a boat. Um, and I mean, this is, this is why like the apostle Paul will say we were fellow workers with God, you know, we, we do cooperate with God. Work the out your own salvation. Though, well, go ahead, say it. Work out your own salvation. And yeah, work out your own salvation. Oh, so I guess I'm supposed to do something like I'm a, I'm a doer. Um, the pantheism doesn't let me be a doer. God's the only doer in pantheism. There's no me doing. Um, also then that's also why there's no real like moral culpability or anything like that. Cause there aren't really any creaturely agents. Um, so if I, so do we cooperate with God? And the answer is yes, we do cooperate with God. Now I can imagine a, a Calvinist objection uh, being thrown up there. That's synergism. I don't know. You know, that's synergism. That's not monergism. The problem is if by monergism, you mean God does all the causing ever, then your monergism is pantheism. Do you know what I'm after? Like we have to be careful. By the way, when we talk about monergistically, um, we're talking about the, usually what we mean as Calvinists is we're talking about the initiative, the primacy so it's not a it's not a multiple first causes, and so when it comes to first co- primary causality, um, certainly we're monogistic. But when it comes to the event itself, there is a certain kind. Can I say it? There is a certain kind of synergism, but it needs to. This is like when this is what we mean by cooperation. Uh, the Reformed tradition, for those who are new to it and think it doesn't leave room for cooperation. Um, or you working with God as a fellow worker, not only does the Bible leave room for that, the theological literature of our tradition uh, makes gives a nice textured explanation and account of that. So what I should say, back to your back to Daniel lifting the boat, um, what I should say is Daniel cooperates with God and together, if I could put it even that way, they lift the boat. But the question is, if you're a cooperator with God, what is the manner of your cooperation? And this and this is where Norton is very helpful. He says that we are both, you are both, you, Daniel, are a causal principle really distinct from God in the lifting of the boat. But does that then kind of do the deist thing where you kind of are now stepping God out of the causal explanatory picture to make space for Daniel? And the answer is no, because as Norton says, while you are a cooperator, you are not a coordinate cooperator with God but rather you are a subordinate cooperator. So the question is not whether we are cooperators or fellow workers with God. The question is whether we are coordinate fellow workers or subordinate fellow workers. A coordinate fellow worker is one who is another first cause. So I'll go back to Travis and Daniel lifting the boat. When when Travis and Daniel lift the boat, when you guys both together lift it, that is concurrence, cooperation of a coordinating sort. 
Does that, does that make sense? In other words, you have two partial first causes that collaborate and each do a fraction of the causing work to produce the effect boat lifted. But what isn't the case is Daniel isn't the cause of Travis's causing and Travis's causing isn't the cause of Daniel's causing. That's coordination. Two, in a certain sense, with regard to that event, sort of two primary workers collaborate a part to produce a single outcome. Is When we say that we are co-workers with God or that God works with us concurrently, when God concurs with our will, does he concur with our will as a, as a coordinate principle of causality or a subordinate principle of causality? And I think um, Norton, sort of just following the Augustan Aquinas tradition, in the reform do that, would say that we are subordinate causes. That is to say, I'm a cause and God's a cause and I'm not the cause that God is and he's not the cause that I am. But insofar as I am a cause, he is the cause of me being a cause. And in that respect, my causality is subordinated to his. And so there's a certain sense in which I could say, God, let's just go to Daniel. God causes Daniel to cause the lifting of the boat, not by displacing Daniel's causality, by causing Daniel's causality. Does, it, does that make sense? God doesn't, God doesn't push your causality out of the way. In a certain sense, he pushes your causality into being. That's how we should think of it. So where is God absent? Do you get what I'm after? Like, where is, where is causality where there's not God's causality in that picture? And I would say nowhere. Does that mean then that Daniel isn't a real cause? No. It means that Daniel is not an absolute first cause, but he's a cause cause. Or, or I think, Travis, you brought it up earlier. He's a moved mover. Yeah. He's a made-to-be maker, <laughs> okay, if we can put it like that. Um, and in that respect, then, we should think of God's causal relation to the world as non-competitive. Do you get what I'm after? Competitive causality is how created and finite causes relate to each other. That's how the gods of the nations relate to up humans and other gods. That's how, that's how angels and, and demons uh, relate to each other um, and to humans, um, that's, that's how things that are not say, things that aren't complete causes of, of events, that's how they relate as competitive sharers of causal explanatory space. We don't want to think of God's cause that because if that's how God causes, then every time God causes, he, in a certain sense, has to displace and overwhelm and neutralize the causality of whatever he's of, of the other cause. Does that, does that make sense? Um, okay. Yeah, definitely. Do we still want to raise the question of evil? Probably. Yeah, no, I think it, I think it's important <laughs> to talk about, especially as it, you know, we're talking about primary secondary causes and, and ensuring that we preserve that creator creature distinction. And I think that's, you know, talking about overriding will and competitive agencies. I think that's where, um, a lot of these dissenting views go wrong is they're assuming there is some sort of um, set level, like you said, with cooperation uh, with regards to these agencies and that diminishes the creature creator uh, distinction. Um, so Travis, do you want to bring in the nature of evil? Cause I think that this plays right into that with regards to causes and how was God not the author of evil? Yeah. So I guess the, the question, you know, I'm just kind of, why is having a proper understanding of the nature of evil important into this discussion of 
the authorship of evil, how we can say God is not the author of sin, not the author of evil, and how it plays in with the concept of, of concurrence. I, I will kind of go in with one point, too. I was reading a book by Isaac Watts called Logic, and he put it in such a way that I had never thought of it before, that evil is not a thing. It is a no thing. And if it is a no thing, you don't create no things. You know, it's a lack of something which is righteousness and good. And that's also a point that was kind of brought up. It was, I'd never heard it before. And then I read your paper shortly after reading that. And it's like, how am I hearing this over and over again repeatedly now when I'd never heard of it before? But yeah, I'd love to hear you explain that one. Well, I'll just say, uh, I'll just plead uh, total unoriginality for myself and Isaac Watts on this, and actually for the entire Protestant tradition, because that <laughs> that just that position you just described is it really of of kind of old vintage. Uh, many will call it the Augustinian view, and maybe in terms of like kind of theologians who bore down deeply on this topic. Uh, Many of us are beholden to Augustine's view, which you just articulated uh, very nicely, which is that sin is a privation or it's it's not a thing. It's a no thing that should be. That's I mean, that's really what it, that's really what it is. And so there's a certain sense in which to kind of tie this into our discussion of providence so far. How is it that Christians, and again, not just reform, reform Christians say this, but also, um, but also medieval Catholics would say this, and church fathers would say this, um, that God is not the author of evil. And yet the very same people could turn around with a straight face without blushing and tell you that all things, all things are from him, through him, and to him, that he sustains all things by the word of his power. In him we live, move, and have our being, and from him we receive life, breath, and all things. And you know what I'm after? Like comprehensive causality and then a denial of authorship. Like, how do you square those two? How do you say, because here's the thing, is there evil in the world? Can I just put it like that? Yes. Yes, there's evil in the world. Is there anything in the world that God, you know, and then we get to the question, well, if God made all things, if God, if everything that is in the world, God made to be, and there's evil in the world, then how is God not the author of evil? Isn't it just kind of word games in which you kind of on the one, you, you kind of want to, you know, what the, it sounds like what we want to do is, um, you know, run with the fox and hunt with the hounds. You get what I'm after? Like, or have your cake and eat it too. Pick your metaphor. Um, I kind of I want to have like God causing everything, and then I want to say there's this thing, and that God didn't author it, and I want you to just believe me that I'm not contradicting myself when I say that. And, and people find that incredible; they truly find that literally incredible. Like that just sounds like like cross canceling double talk. Like that, how could that not be tongue in cheek? So I think that's kind of the uh, that's not an unserious question. Um, I want to so let's do this. I want to affirm that God is not the author of evil. I want to affirm and stand by and not walk away from anything I've said so far about comprehensive universal causality and even that kind of non-competitive way of articulating it um, as the cause of causes. Um, and then I want to ask the question, well, if God isn't the author of evil, then what is? And the, the answer, the short answer to that is um, humans and angels that sin are. Okay, let's, so let's just say that. Um, fallen angels and fallen humans are the authors of sin. Doesn't this make it, and God is not, doesn't this make it sound then like there's some measure of causal autonomy? Do you get what I'm after? Like there's there's you causing and making something and God isn't concurring. 
And then, of course, if he does concur, doesn't that entail him on in some layer of authorship? Okay, that's that's the question. So let's go, and Travis, you raised this question. Let's go to the nature of evil first, because we really have to talk about what evil is before we talk about the cause of evil. In other words, um, and so if we say evil's a no thing, so let's just talk about this briefly. What is evil? What we should say is, oh, really quick on this before I do that, what, what further sort of presents a challenge to this is all the biblical descriptions in which God's decree and God's providential operation seems to be immediately and purposely involved even in evil events, right? So Peter will say at Pentecost in Acts 2.23 that the, deliver, that, the, the handing over of Christ for crucifixion by the hands of godless men was in accordance, Peter says, with the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So how could God's predetermined plan involve the crucifixion of the Lord of glory at the hands of godless men without God being the author of the evil in that horrendous event? That's So I'm, all I'm trying to say is that it's not just philosophical contemplation that raises this conundrum in our minds. Undoubtedly, the biblical text raises the question for us sort of on the face of it. So just so we're clear. Um, and it's also, you know, when it's it's like when it's like when Lamentations 3, 38, uh, and Jeremiah says, Do not the evil thing and the good go forth from the mouth of the Lord? That's what he says. Do not the you know, or when Isaiah says, Am I not the God who creates calamity? <laughs> okay. Um, what is this calamitous making God from whom the evil thing goes forth from the word of his mouth? In other words, if his decree and his predetermined plan includes evil, then how do I say God is not the author of evil? That's okay. So we've set the problem. Uh, what is evil? What we should say just very briefly is that evil is, that's the way I put it in the article, evil is the absence of good where good ought to be. And I think that that, or, or the absence, we could even say the absence of being of a sort, good of a sort, uh, being be, uh, good is a transcendental of being. Everywhere there's being, there is good. Um, we'll talk about that maybe in a second. Um, so it's the absence of being where it ought to be, or the absence more particularly of good where it ought to be. It's not merely the absence of something. So it's not merely privative. That is to say, it's not merely the absence of, I mean, I could, I could pick up a number two pencil and I could say to you uh, that there's a certain lack in this. And this is actually what I want to say about all evil. All evil is a certain lack. It's not any, it's not every lack. It's, it's a lack of what ought to be, okay, uh, morally or um, physically. And so I could say of this pencil, this pencil lacks eyesight. Or I could say this pencil is unseeing, okay? Um, and you would say, okay. Is that evil? In other words, there's a there's a privation of being here, so to speak. There's a lack of eyesight in this pencil. Is this pencil blind? And the answer is no, it's not blind. It's just unseeing. But if I were unseeing, would that be a kind of um, evil, a deprivation, if I can get into the depravity language, a deprivation of my nature? And the answer is yes. Because by nature, I ought to be able to see. Therefore, the good of seeing is proper to the good of my nature, whereas the good of seeing is not proper to the good of a pencil. It is, it is not one of the, the natural goods of a pencil to be able to see. So the lack of eyesight in the pencil is not an evil, and the lack of eyesight uh, in a human or an animal is. Do you get what I'm after? And so it's the lack of good where good ought to be. If we take that into, if we take that into the moral realm, 
then what we're saying is that it's the lack of goodwill where where goodwill ought to be. Okay, um, it's the lack of goodwill, where, which is to the point that Travis brought up. The reason we say that sin is a no thing is not to say that it's not real in any sense whatsoever, but it's not a it's not a substance. It's not a something that has its own active existence. It's actually a lack of a something that either physically, materially, or morally, depending on whether you're talking about natural or moral evils, should be, um, according to the nature of things. Um, and so, in this respect, we should say that sin is sin is a deprivation of is, not a thing, not a thing that has is. It's actually a thing that should be. That is. It, it's actually the lack of an is that should be. If I can say it like that. Um, and so it kind of comes down, you, I mean, we can use illustrations. I, I think I get this one from Herbert McCabe. He uses the illustration of like a, a hole in your sock. Do you want them after? A hole in your sock is precisely the absence of thread where given that it's a sock, thread ought to be. Okay. So it's not a thing in its own right. That is to say, like, like for instance, like let's just say that a, um, let's just say that a weaver makes a sock, but he doesn't have to make a hole in a sock. A hole in a sock is actually a lack of making, is actually an absence of making, um, as opposed to a making. Do you know what I'm after? It's, an, it's a lack of it. So I'll just give you an illustration. Um, it doesn't exist in its own right. It doesn't have its own proper active existence. When I go to my sock drawer and I pull it open, I never like look inside my sock drawer and you know, say to my wife, hey, what's up with this? All I've got in my sock drawer, sock drawer are sock holes. You know what I mean? Like no socks, just sock holes. A hole in your sock only exists in a sock. Does that make sense? Socks exist. Holes in socks are precisely non-existence where there should be existence of thread. Um, so, so we can kind of come at, does this mean that holes in socks aren't real? No, they're real, but they're not things. They're lacks of things where things should be. Does that, does, does that make sense? This is really, this is actually when we talk, even in our tradition, whether you're talking about the Reformed tradition or kind of the Augustinian tradition before us, and we're really the biblical tradition, when we talk about sin as depravity, depravity, we're actually already signing up for this privative account of sin. We're already saying, when we talk about depravity, we're already saying sin is the absence of good where it should be, in particular, deprivation of what? What good is what good is lacking where it should be? Goodwill. Goodwill. All right. So does that that kind of make so when it, when we get to this, like why isn't so how do you call what accounts for the non is? That's really the question. Where is this is really the question with regard to authorship. Where where is the lack of good form? Wherever you can locate the lack of good form, there you have located in a certain sense the formal authorship of evil. Okay, and I would I would just want to say this, that when a man sins, and when a man wills, so let's just put will the act of your will. Every act of your will is a motion. There is no act of your will that is not from God. Do you get what I'm after? Um, there's no act of your will that is not from God. In Him you live, move, and have your being. And you're like, but we will all sorts of evil things. But it, it's not it's not the motion of the will that is evil. It's the disorder and the lack of good somewhere or another in that. So even we, we talk about sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of omission, that's easy. That's a failure to will the good you ought to will. But sins of commission are, are often willings of good in disordered ways. Um, so if I can put it like this, uh, let's just say, 
I willed uh, to have the money in your wallet in my wallet. Okay. Is that, um, is that evil? I don't yeah. know. Maybe, but but, well, let's just say that you, let's just say that you're an employer, uh, Daniel, and I'm a potential employee. Every employee wants to get his employer's money out of his employer's hands and into his own. Right. I think that's right. Um, (laughs) Otherwise it's voluntary. Otherwise it's, it's, you know, pro bono. Um, If it's not pro bono, (laughs) if it's gainful employment, you're you are aiming at the good of having your employer's money out of his possession and into your possession. Good. Is that in itself um, an unlawful desire? No, no. it's no. not an unlawful desire. Um, if it is a de- if it is um, covetous, which the, the ha- wanting to have someone else's money for yourself is not covetousness. <laughs> I mean, that's what every employee wants, um, and frankly, that's what every that's what every businessman wants. Every producer wants to have the dollars of the consumer out of the consumer's possession and into his own. Do you get what I'm after? That's not covetousness. That's not necessarily greed. It is the desire for something good. Can that desire for something good be disordered? Yes, it can be disordered um, by way of excess. Um, it can be, in other words, you, you can desire good, but in excess, this is, this can look in terms of money, this in possessions, it means greed in terms of food. We call it gluttony. You desire the desire for something good and a good meal and a tasty meal is good. The desire for, um, that good in excess, the excess is usually what by excess. What I mean is, you know, when people say you can't get enough of a good thing. Well, okay. <laughs> But then what, what's up with greed and what's up with gluttony? Uh, and so what you want to say is um, you can get enough of a good thing if that desire for the good thing causes you to fail to will other goods that you ought to will. Like you can will the good of food, but you will it gluttonously if you will it at the expense of your health, which you ought also to will. Don't you know you're a body of you're a temple of the Holy Spirit? Do you get what I'm after? So it's not the willing of the, the, the glutton is not guilty of the willing of food. He's guilty of the willing of food at the expense of willing other goods that should modulate the willing of food. Does that does that make sense? Uh, what we're after here? And so I've uh, one of you raised this question in an email you sent me because I say somewhere in the article that every evil act, it, what induce, what moves the will is the desire for good. So everyone desires good. That doesn't sound right because what's up? But we, de- but we, when we desire good in disordered ways, by either desiring one good at the expense of another that we are morally obligated to will, or desiring penultimate goods, what I want to call created goods, at the expense of the ultimate good. That is to say, um, you know, when David says in Acts 14, I have no good besides you, or I have no good apart from you. David desires the good of, you know, winning a victory for Israel when he goes in to fight Goliath. David desires the good of preserving his life when he hides from Saul. Um, David desires the good of the, of the wise uh, benefits of Abigail's companionship when he marries her. David desires all sorts of goods that aren't God. But if he, desi- but if he desired those goods as ends in themselves, that is to say, as ultimate goods, then he could desire legitimate goods idolatrously by not, by not more deeply desiring the one who is goodness itself. So if you desire bonum, goodness at the expense of the summum bonum, the highest goodness, then you make a God of the creature. 
you can make a god of money you can make a god of you can make a god of notoriety you can make a you can make a god of any any good not god can be turned into an idol by cutting god out of your out of the picture does that make sense it's not it's not wanting a wife that is um bad it's wanting a wife um as an end as a good end in itself that isn't ultimately for the glory of God. Does this make sense? So you can you can want food and drink, and you can eat and drink to the glory of God, or you can eat and drink as an end in itself, which is idolatry. You make the highest good the creature. So does this make sense? So even, even idolatry is willing the good in a disordered way. So, so willing non-ultimate goods as though they were ultimate, that's idolatry. That's a sin of commission, by the way. But all sins of commission all evil acts of will are willing goods badly. Is that, is that, in other words, the bad is not in the good willed. The bad is in the manner of willing. Okay. So good. The good is what moves. The good is what moves the will. A failure to will the good. That is moral depravity. That's what we mean. What's the, what exactly is what's, what's depraved in that? Um, a failure to will well. Okay, to seek to what I mean by will well is seek not wheel well, will well, uh, <laughs> to seek the good that you ought to seek in the right order in which you ought to seek it, and with respect to all the other goods you ought to seek, order to the ultimate good that you ought to seek in all of your seeking of his created goods. All right, if we can get so let's get to the authorship of evil then. What is evil? Evil is precisely immoral evil is precisely the absence of goodwill or the willing of the good where the will of the good ought to be. Okay. But in so much as that's a lack, not, not a something that's a lack of good where good ought to be. We can't say that God is its author because it's really a, a lack of good form where good form should be. And if the lack of good form is in the creature and not in God, then the, then the creature is the formal is the, it's like the, the creature is the formal cause in negative. The lack of good, the lack of good form is precisely in my will, not in God. Now, can God sovereignly choose not to give me goodwill, resulting in the corruption of my will? Like, yes. can God, I'll put I'll put a different so hold that question. Can God give, can God choose to withhold health? from me, some, some physiological beneficial function? Can he choose to withheld some health from me, resulting in the corruption and maybe even death of my body? Yes. Yeah. Yes. The question is, um, wait a minute. So would I be healthy if God, if, would I be materially well, if God didn't give me the good of material health? No. If he withheld that good, there would be a deprivation. Okay. But the deprivation wouldn't be in God. The deprivation would be in me by God's not giving me the good. So, so move that over into the question of the will. The deprivation of my will, I might say God doesn't, if I have good will, then God ultimately gave me good will, right? Uh, in him, we live, move, and have our being. Um, he's at work in you to will and to do, right? Second or uh, Philippians 2.13. He's at work in you to will and to do. Um, he takes out your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh, right? Um, Ezekiel 36. Um, and so God gives you goodwill. And so if you do good, we say, praise be to God. If you don't do good, which is to say doing good evilly, seeking a good evilly, you know, like uh, for, go back to our point. If I seek your money, but I seek it in unlawful ways, 
um, you know, I hold you at gunpoint and say, give me your money, um, as opposed to a mutually agreeable con contract by which I earn your money. Um, or if I even do worse and I harm you to take your money, it, it's not in wanting your money that I sin. It's in wanting your money at the expense of wanting your well-being that I, that I sin. Okay. Or it's wanting your money, but in an unlawful, but, but acquiring it in an unlawful manner that makes it, that makes it evil. Um, or if it's wanting your money because I'm discontent with the provisions God's made for me, then it's an evil desire. In other words, the desire for the good is only evil given the lack of a desire for some other good, your well-being, in which case I do violence to you, or um, or contentment with what God's uh, given me, in which case I'm I'm covetous and ungrateful. It's an ungrateful way of wanting good, okay, like that. So, But here's the question. Where is the lack? The lack is in me, not in God. So that if we can say it like this, um, I'm not, let's just, let's just get to, I'm, I want to read one statement from John Norton. Again, now we're, this is a reformed theologian. He, it's a complex statement. It's in the article if listeners want to go find it, but I want to read it because it's kind of, it's, it's really tasty. It's rich and sumptuous and it's challenging. So it's, it's worth it. Norton says, as often as, as often as the will of creatures does not will, as, as often as you aren't willing God hath not determined it to will. So we can say, if I don't will, God has not determined me to will. The non-determination or suspension of the determination of God, God freely choosing not to make a thing be, like an act of goodwill, he says, is the antecedent cause in respect of God. That is to say, if I don't will good, it's because God didn't, give, didn't choose to give me goodwill. He says, but this cause cannot be positive. Do you get what I'm after? Got, uh, in other words, choosing not to cause isn't causing. Like literally isn't causing. A positive cause, he says, cannot be terminated or not can, cannot reach its conclusion in a non-ends. That's what he says, a non-being, right? Positive causes make things to be. Just so we're clear on that. He says, such as man's not, it can't, it can't terminate in man's non-volition. Not willing, it uh, not willing is, it must therefore be suspensive. The meat, the meat withholding of the influence of God without any positive action suffices for the annihilation of the creature. That is, therefore, the suspension of the the dispension of God suspending his determinative positive causal influence suffices to prevent that operation in the creature. So if there's lack of goodwill in me, I can say God didn't make goodwill in me. But precisely where is the lack? That's the question. The authorship belongs precisely wherein the formality of goodwill is lacking. And that's not in God, that's in me. And that's why the tradition says, I'm the author, not by being a positive cause instead of God, but by not being a cause that I ought to be. The question, though, that people struggle with is, oh, wait a minute, God could have given it to me. Yes, he could have given you goodwill. Yes, he could have given you a heart of flesh and removed your heart of stone. Um, do, do you know what I'm after? The question is, where is the lack? Where is the lack of soft-heartedness if you have a heart of stone? Where precisely is the lack? It's in you, not God. But this comes to the question, and this is a touchier issue. Um, how can God require of me that which I could only render if he first gave it to me. And does not that does not his requiring of me 
it of me, thereby obligate him morally to give it to me. That's that probably, if you want to like really get down to the nitty gritty of this question, it's really a question about obligations and rights. Does, is God able to make me, to place me under obligation, which I could only fulfill if he gave me the good, so to speak, the good will to fulfill it. If God places me under obligation, does he not thereby Concur, con, you know, concomitantly with that, place himself under the obligation to the to give me the good he obliges me to give. That's the question. That that probably is the question um, on on this, and it kind of goes to now. It's a question of rights. Does is God does God have the right to withhold any good that he morally requires of the creature? I don't know. Are we, are we kind of like now we're, this is not a boutique. This is the question after you've sort of cut that cut through um, and sort of put everything else in place. This is the question. Um, is God obligated to give every good that is good to the creature that is good for the creature? No, if that's the case, then is God like, it's, it's better for me to breathe than not breathe. Right. Is God obligated morally to continue to give me breath? In other words, can God choose not to not to make something? Can God choose will to not make something? You know what I'm after? Is God free to withhold His making? I, I, let's in this case, the, my next breath. If if I breathe, God made me breathe. Can God withhold His making? That's not God positively causing. That's God not causing. Is God free to not cause? Do, do you get what I'm after? And if He doesn't cause, and if what He doesn't cause, and if He doesn't cause good then there will be a deprivation in that thing, bodily, my health, or morally, my will. This gets to the question, though, of, you know, this gets to the question of, like, Romans 9, not fair. <laughs> um, hmm. And that's actually what has to be proven. What has to be proven by the critic at this point, the critic of kind of the Augustinian Thomistic Reformed tradition, is he has to actually show that God himself is morally obliged to give every good to the creature that is good for the creature. Do, do you get what I'm after? And that's actually, that's actually the question. Does God owe you what is good for you? And, and I think there, are, I think the answer to that question biblically is no. I guess dangerous to say God owes anybody anything. Well, you, now God can obligate Himself by way, by way of a free covenant in which He promises and then stakes a promise on Himself. So I could say, like Travis, I could kind of an accommodated way say, um, if God has placed me in Christ Jesus and given me the down payment, the earnest of His Spirit within me, um, is God obligated to complete the work He's begun in me, only to the extent that He obliged Himself freely through a covenantal promise? Do you get what I'm after? In other words, mm -hmm. there's not a natural necessity. That's my point. There's not a natural necessity under which God is God places uh, Himself, and that's really the challenge. Is God obligated to give every good, every possible good to the creature? Everything that's good for the creature is God obligated to give it. Um, we don't think that about parents. We don't think that parents are obligated to give every conceivable good um, to their children. There's a sort of free withholding, uh, if you will. Is God free to withhold um, 
goodwill from moral agents, thereby leading to the corruption or the deprivation of their will. That's, I mean, that's the question. And then if he does, and then the challenge is, yeah, but if he does that, isn't the creature off the hook? Do you get what I'm after? Like, isn't the fact that God could have given it to me and didn't give it to, didn't give it to me, does that not put all the onus and the moral obligation and the culpability onto him and off of me? And I think that's a bigger that's a bigger challenge. I do address that a little bit uh, toward the latter part of the article, um, in which really the question is how moral culpability is established. And the reason, can we do we have a minute to talk about this? Should Absolutely. We, let's, yeah. Let's take this for just a brief moment. Yeah. Um, let's just talk about why why we use free will in like a court of law um, to judge moral culpability. Because um, here's the thing. Well, I'll just get a couple of illustrations about this. Let's imagine. Uh, a scenario, I'll run, at this, I'll run the same scenario over a couple times briefly for you. Let's just imagine that I'm driving my car down the road and in a, um, in a fit of world-loathing rage, I cross the double yellow line, strike a fellow motorist head on and kill the other motorist. They're not going to get me for involuntary manslaughter on that one. Um, they're going to get me for, they're going to get me, they're, they're by establishing my intention, by establishing that I did what I wanted, they are, and was not compelled to that by any other causal explanation in the world. In other words, another motorist didn't push me into that car. Someone in the passenger seat didn't take the wheel of my car and, you know, override me. In other words, my causality was not overridden or was sufficiently not overridden by some other causal explanatory factor. You have to prove that in a court of law. And if you can prove that, then the best causal explanation of the car crossing the double yellow and killing the fellow motorist is actually a choice I made. Okay. And then you're going to get me for, you're going to get me for murder and maybe even premeditated murder. Now change the scenario a little bit. Let's imagine that I drop my chapstick on the floor of my car and I'm driving down the same road, same scenario. All the conditions are exactly the same, except in this case, I'm not out there in a fit of world loathing rage. I'm out there not watching the road as I'm rooting around on the floor for my chapstick. And I crossed the double yellow line in that event and same event killed my fellow motorist and head on. Are they going to get me for premeditated murder one? No, they're going, they might not even call that murder, even though I killed someone and it was a choice I made that led to that person's death, namely the choice to root around looking for my chapstick rather than watch the road and control my car. Um, and yet I'm still going to bear moral culpability and they're going to get me for something like vehicular manslaughter. And I, I'm, and I may even do jail time uh, for that, and have, and certainly going to have my license uh, suspended, and all. The, in other words, I'm going to lose, I'm going to be punished as a result because I do bear moral culpability. It may not be murder, but it is a failure to will the good of my fellow motorist. Do you get what I'm after? I have an obligation when I get behind the wheel to will the life of others on the road, and to will all the things I need to do in my car to ensure that I do that. So what I'm actually doing is I'm I'm failing to will the well-being of my fellow motorists when I take my eyes off the road. Well, I should say texting, actually. Um, when I choose to text <laughs> instead of drive, the, way, the reason that is morally wrong is because I have a moral obligation to my fellow motorists that I am, in a certain sense, failing to will by willing this good of texting. Do you get what I'm after? Like, there's a... That's what's going on there. But you'll get me for manslaughter. But imagine a different scenario. Same road, same car, same event, same horrific outcome. But this case, um, without ever having any knowledge that I was susceptible to a seizure, I suddenly went into some kind of cerebral 
seizure in which I truly lost the motor skills of my own hands to control the car. And in a, in a seizure, I crossed, now it's all very tragic, but I'm trying to be memorable with my illustration here. I crossed <laughs> the double yellow line and I killed my fellow motorist. They're not even going to get me for vehicular manslaughter because I had no good. Re in other words, what caused that was an event, was a physical breakdown of my body for which my will doesn't play much at all, if any, causal explanatory. In other words, I didn't do what I want. It wasn't my doing what I wanted that badly, whether that's rooting around for the chapstick or cross, you know, or aiming at that other vote, because I wasn't willing badly at all when I had that seizure. Um, they may put a, they may, they may restrict my driving privileges without a medical checkup and certain, you know, in other words, but they're not going to punish me more and they're not going to say that i did they're not going to say i did anything evil and then you could go to other causal circumstances like let's imagine that um the road we're talking about is on the side of a hill and there's a rock slide on the on the passenger side of my car and the rock slide actually comes and pushes my car over into the fellow motorist in the same outcome it kills the person so it was my car with me at the wheel that crosses the double yellow and crashes into it but there are here's the point though to the extent that there are other causal explanatory factors and my will is relatively free. And by the way, this is what the confession is affirming when it affirms free will. My will is relatively free from other potential natural causes in the world. That is to say from other free agents and from other, you know, circumstantially causal events. My will is sometimes free from other causal events in which the best natural cause is actually my will in terms of created causes sometimes my will is the best explanation of my action and sometimes it isn't like the rock slide would in a certain sense override my will so i wouldn't go to jail for the rock slide even though it was my car that hit the fellow motorist. i wouldn't go to jail for the seizure um i might get i will get in trouble for not watching the road when i should have been and i'll definitely get murder one if i in a fit of world loathing rage aimed at the person my point is how do we establish moral culpability we establish moral culpability by the relative autonomy, relative autonomy of my causal volitional actions from other potential causal explanations in the world. But when it comes to God, I have no causal autonomy. Do, do you get what I'm after? Like, yeah. I don't have, there is no motion of my will that isn't from him. All things are from him, through him and to him. In him, I live, move and have my being. Of course, that includes the operation, that includes the operations and doings of my will. Um, why in that case do is the moral culpability not taken off of my off of me and put on to God? Do you get what I'm after? And the reason is because of this. Because when God because when God causes my will, he doesn't displace my will. He mm. makes my will be and move. Do you want to, and by the way, to the extent my will is and to the extent my will moves, it's good. To the extent that my will doesn't move toward a good, it's a, obliged, it's evil to that extent. And that's what God, that's not what God's causing in me. That's precisely what God isn't causing in me. Um, all right. So we've got the, we've got the picture set out. Is, is volitional, is, is more, is volitional autonomy. The autonomy of, is, is the absolute freedom of my will a condition for establishing my moral culpability? I want to argue not necessarily, only to the extent that I would not be able to judge the moral culpability of a man unless I could see that his will was what caused it instead of some other natural cause, I cannot make him culpable. Imagine, 
imagine that my heart was so corrupt and in a fit of world-loathing rage, I got in the car and I went out there aiming at the next motorist. And at the very instant in which I was in motion of crossing the double yellow line, a rock slide pushed my car over into the other lane and killed. I could have been out there with the intent of killing that man in that way at that time, but you wouldn't be able to prove that in a court of law because the rock slide would put another causal factor into the picture. You wouldn't know the condition of my will. You wouldn't know. You wouldn't know whether I was doing what I wanted when I crossed it. The thing is, I could cross the double yellow line while a rock slide pushed me over and also be wanting that to happen because I hate my fellow man. The problem is you, without, without, without disengaging my, my, the, the condition of my will from other potential causes, you would never be able to establish my moral culpability. That and that reason alone is why we actually need a relative independence of the human will to establish moral culpability. What really establishes moral culpability, though, is me doing what I want. Do you get what mm -hmm. I'm after? Yep. And me doing what I want is not in competition with God moving me, with God making me be. And therefore, I don't have to, to the extent that God is involved in the picture, I am still morally culpable because I'm doing what I want in that moment. All right. So that's kind of my, my point on that. It's not. So when people say, do you believe in free will? I want to say. You know, absolutely, I believe in free will, just not absolute free will. It really comes down to a question, free from what and free for what? That's kind of a two-sided question. When I say that my will is free, I have to then, people say this, I believe in free will, I believe in free will, but they, they're they very um, generous with themselves in not specifying precisely wherein lies that freedom. Do, do you want to after like, like, I'm like, if I said to you, I'm free, I'm free, you, you would want to, you, you would reasonably say free for what, free from what? I could say I'm free from hair because it's fallen out, you know, a lot of it. <laughs> um, you know, or, or, or I could say um, I'm free from this addiction or I could say, um, you know, right now I'm, I'm in California for the first time in, you know, 16 winters and there's a there's a nor'easter howling up the East Coast right now. So I could say I'm, I'm free from shoveling snow this winter. Um, <laughs> you know, like you have to when you say free, you say your will is free. You should immediately say free from what? And what I want to say is I believe in free will. And if you said free from what I would say, sometimes free from potential other caused explanate caused causal explanations of my action. Free sometimes from natural. In other words, my will sometimes is a, is a cause that is not caused by other things in nature. Um, relatively free from potential other natural causes of my, of my operations or actions. Um, if you put the question, so that's kind of like horizontally, but if I put the question vertically, free from God, do you know what I'm after? Free from God, then you run into deep problems because free from God, free from God either means, uh, free from God means deism, some kind mm -hmm. of deism. Free from God means that there are multiple first causes in the world, God plus other things. Free from God means God is not the absolute first cause from whom are all things, because sometimes I'm the ultimate explanation for things. Do, do, you got them after? And also, I just want to say free from God, what would that even be? If I were free from God, you know what that would mean? Instant annihilation. Like, I can't <laughs> yeah. be free from God. Does that make, are we good on this? I cannot be free from God, because if I were free from God, I wouldn't be. Because in him, I live, move, and have my being. So that's really the question with, with free will. Free from what? What establishes moral culpability? The absence of good where good ought to be. Wherein is that absence? It's in the will of angels and men, fallen angels and men. Um, 
Is God the cause of that? No, God is actually not the cause of that because he's not causing good to be where it ought to be. Does that result in the deprivation of moral evil of my will? Yes. Um, anyhow, these are deep waters, though. These are hard things to kind of wrestle with. And it does force us, though, and I think we should do this as Christians. It forces us to, to sort of recast the question in terms of being and causality. Mm. And that's, that's really how we should kind of recast this question to get clarity on it. By the way, it doesn't take away the mystery, though. Do you know what I'm after? Like, it doesn't. Yes. Amen. It, I'm not suggesting that this makes the whole how God holds free creatures accountable for failures of goodwill for which he is free to give them. Um, in other words, it doesn't make that totally unenigmatic, but it, it at least, I think, does enough to say it's still enough to establish human moral culpability because we still do what we want. Um, and it's still enough to say that God causes without overriding and dissolving our causality, not by sharing causal space with us, but by causing us to be causes. In other words, it, it does at least get to some clarification of the question. And that's really what we... Job. Oh, sorry, Dan, go ahead. Um, I get, that's really what we're talking about when we talk about God. It's really more of what he is not than what he is. It's just more of the negation so we don't speak incorrectly of him and, and him and the economy and his works. Yeah, I'm actually trying to take away explanations that get rid of the mystery. I want to leave the mystery right where it is. I don't want to mm -hmm. make the mystery go away, but I do, but I do want to, you know, if I can put to your negation thing, I do want to say 20 things it isn't, even if what it is still, what it is tests my faith. Do you get what I'm after? What it is, is really mm -hmm. a test of whether I'm content with God's ways being his and not my ways with his thoughts being his and not my thoughts. Mm -hmm. This question of agency, concurrence, providence, and evil um, there are things that can be said to keep us from saying the wrong thing and, and to say the right thing, but it, it will still leave the right thing mysterious insofar as God as pure act is mysterious. Hmm. Yeah. Travis, did you have something you want to add? Yeah. And no, I was just going to say the, uh, you know, free will, you know, I, I agree that no such thing as pure autonomous free will because everything that we do is shaped by something even if it's just nothing more than i'd say every act and decision we make is a culmination of who we are from life experiences influences from others goes to that old you know saying no man is an island you know it's a uh, i like how you know edwards you know really does tie that in nicely in freedom of the will you know with we will only do that which we most greatly desire and our desire is bound by our nature and, you know, so that's where that free will versus free moral agency. I think there's a, a clear distinction there that needs to be properly understood, you know, in this discussion. Right. Yeah. My, my freedom is bounded by my nature. Um, if my nature is corrupted by a by a moral deprivation, then that will keep me from doing good, at least doing at least doing good godwardly, um, doing good in a way that is sublated to his glory ultimately. Um, so certainly there are, it's not an unconditioned freedom, even outside of the moral component, like Adam before the fall, wasn't free to drop acorns because he wasn't an oak tree. You know what I'm after? Like his, his nature, even the non-moral aspects of his nature sort of put limits in terms of potential operations, what he could and couldn't do, um, what he could choose to do, um, freely, uh, and successfully was conditioned, not just by the condition of his will morally, but also by his nature more fundamentally. Um, and so we should always bear that in mind. I just want I would just want to say when we talk about freedom, we should always say free from what? And then we should be specific. Yeah. And then we should say free for what? And we should also be 
on specific. And then I think we can actually find a place to affirm meaningful, morally meaningful free will without doing so by having to push God's providence and his concurrence out of the picture to some extent. Yeah. yeah. Amen. So. Lots of good stuff here. Um, Dr. Dolzo, I guess just to sum up, what are some of the implications just practically for us as Christians that uh, the concept of providence and, and concurrence specifically have for uh, us in our daily lives? I, I think the first one is just that um, it, it just gives us immediately the answer to Paul's question. What do you have that you have not received? Right. And if you and then Paul's exhortation. And if you have received it, why do you boast as though you did not receive it? In other words, I think this has a this is going to throttle down your pride massively, massively, mm. immediately. And and the positive side of that is um, gratitude. Right. This is one of the, this is one of the uh, I should include myself in this. This is one of those uh, abiding perennial sins that tempt us is ingratitude. Um, you know, I think of like Romans one, where Paul says they suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. They did not honor him as God or give thanks. Um, a doctrine of providence should should infuse your soul with a true doctrine of providence should infuse your soul with just boundless gratitude, so to speak. Um, that's one of them. Also, also confidence in him that if he's given me a promise and if he has staked promises upon his unchanging self, who is the providential God who never, as it were, meets his match or is competing for causal explanatory space. If all that's true, then, then we, then the doctrine of pro, the doctrine of providence rooted in the doctrine of God, um, really should bolster our confidence to trust him for those things that he has promised to do, to trust him for common provisions, life, breath, and all things, but also to trust him for those special um, supernatural provisions that he who began a good work in you will complete it um, in the day of Christ Jesus, that he will bring us to be where he is and to dwell with him and to make an, his home and habitation with us in glory. I mean, that's the, for the Christian, for the Christian, the doctrine of divine, pro, it also just comes to your daily life too. Um, what happens in my daily life um, may fall out unexpectedly for me, but it doesn't fall out apart from his design and apart from his provision that the wheel and the woe, the health and the sickness, the, the joy and the sadness, the sun and the clouds, you know, you pick all of your whatever you want to say, um, that all of these things are meted out for me by him, according to his wisdom, who loves me more than I can imagine. I mean, that's for the believer. Um, that should be a real takeaway uh, from this doctrine. Amen. Amen. Well, Dr. Dolzo, thank you for joining us today. Lots of good stuff and, and some things for us to consider as we uh, contemplate who God is and how he relates to his creation. Um, and I'm saying that imprecisely. Um, and, and how we can re uh, receive comfort from the doctrine of providence. Um, so thank you very much for joining us today and discussing these difficult topics. Well, Daniel and Travis, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. And with that, everyone, have a great Lord's Day and a great weekend, and we'll see you next week. God bless.